I'm Maureen Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. At the podcast that you would do if you had nothing better to do. And That's what number right. is this, 28? 29. No way! Yeah, 28 was last week. <laughs> I can't, what was it? <laughs> it was, you did, um... Joyce Fed Carol set. Vincent. Yeah. And this week, do we have any updates or anything? No? I and, can't think of anything. And we are getting excited about our upcoming new podcast, Groovy yes, Tube. And we're going to be releasing a trailer for that this yes, week. Yes. And we'll link to it on our site. And um, yeah. And so people can pre-subscribe. Yeah. It'll be fun. It's going to be great. All right. And, and Groovy Tube is the podcast about... Um, childhood, the TV of our childhood looked at through an adult. And we're all, we're filter. in our 50s, so 70s, si- late 60s, 70s, to mid 70s. Yeah, the Brady Bunch, first season. I would season. say, yeah, first, the and first season is going to be on the Brady Bunch. We're going to do 22 episodes. And, and I just want to say like not a to, TV season. and we're not going to get into a big thing now, but I just want to say there are things that watching it, bothered me as a kid but i couldn't quite articulate it and now now we can now we can now we have the words we have the words to go. but then there were other things that that didn't bother me that should have and now i'm like but part of it was the time i mean it was, it was 40 time. years ago yeah it was it was a long but time it's ago. interesting to see it because i haven't seen many of you know it's not like i watched it at great length since no. the maybe we late 70s maybe right. we watched it when it was first on and it, then they had the reruns it's possibly possible we watched some of the reruns and syndication but it's not I like i did a lot of them because they used to be on after school right but so. it's not like star trek or something where we just watched the same episodes over and over oh i know because in shows like that it was if if but i watched they, it's funny how much i remember some of them but i probably didn't watch any of those episodes more than once or well twice. you're older than me too because when i used to come home in grade school they used to have one of the channels had the brady hour and they had oh, two right. in a row and it was on at like three three right. to four or something and we used to watch I don't know why. And when you're a kid, it doesn't bother you to watch the same thing over right. and over. As but I know from having one right, right now. Because we only had a few channels. And So anyway, but we're that's going to be our new podcast. And there will be a trailer coming up that we'll have on our website. And we'll be... We'll post it on our uh, Crime and Stuff uh, social media. And Right. Yep. And people can pre-subscribe. And it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have a lot of fun. Yes, we're going to have fun. But now... And it'll be a little less... Sometimes the show is... It's sad. There's a lot of really sad... I'm not going to say it's depressing. It doesn't make me depressed. But it's sad. There's there's a lot of things that are sad. Well, not every show, but... No, I know, I know. getting killed and stuff isn't fun. No, I guess not. (laughs) But anyway, speaking of which... Okay, you have today's today, topic. yes, and I, I was tired of doing murderers, so today I'm going to talk about Annie Dukin. Annie was a chemist working at the William H. Hinton State Laboratory Institute, that's a mouthful, in Boston as a crime evidence that's analyst. She, <laughs> she was fired in 2012 and subsequently prosecuted for tampering with evidence, obstruction of justice, perjury, and falsification of academic records. The fallout from her misdeeds is even now ongoing, even though she herself has already served her sentence and was released from prison a year ago. Mm. So, who was Annie Dukin? Who was? I'm And why did she fake evidence? How was she able to get away with it and affect over 20,000 convictions in the eastern part of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts? I'm going to try to answer... I used a lot of sources for the story, mainly Boston Globe, Washington Post, New York Times, Associated Press, and NPR. Wow. All of of those are fake news sites. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So I will attribute anything that's unique to whatever, wherever I got it, but a lot of stuff was from multiple sources. Right, they were all reporting the same stuff. We can link to some of them on our website. Like the Washington Post had a good story, and ProPublica had a good story about the aftermath, about the legal ramifications, which I'm going to talk about. Boston Globe was probably one of the best sources, but they're tricky because you have to because you have to subscribe to read a lot of their articles. I gave you my subscription. Information. Yes, but our, for our listeners. Oh, oh yeah. As far as linking to them. <laughs> She was born in 1977 in San Fernando, Trinidad, and Tobago. Immigrated with her parents. Now, wait, wait, I should be saying she... You immigrate to, you emigrate from. But my sentence is badly written because I wrote, she immigrated with her parents from the Caribbean to the United States as a young child. Mm, Yeah, that is. And grew up in Stoughton, Mass., 
it would be is, immigrated because it's immigrated to. to that's is what I the thought. Final verb. That, the... I went over that in my mind several times, okay. and I should have just changed the sentence. That's all right. She grew up in Stoughton, Mass, Massachusetts. For those of you not from New England, I might call it Mass sometimes, that's, just so you know. That's what we call it here. Stoughton's about twenty miles south of Boston. And I stayed there once in a hotel for a week. Wow. Or for, for three, four weeks, I'm sorry. When I'll I have was, to go When look I was at, training. I'll have to go look the for the plaque, plaque they yeah. put up. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I've used that joke before. Yes. Her name back then was Annie Sadia Khan. K-H-A-N. Neighbors remembered a quiet, studious girl. In an Associated Press article that came out at the time of her arrest in October of 2012, Frank Clark, a neighbor of the family in the 1990s, called her, quote, an overachieving kid. But he said it like the context was in a good way. It wasn't, he wasn't trying to be derogatory about it. And said they were, quote, a really nice family, end quote. Clark also recalled Mr. Kahn would mow his mother's lawn, Clark's mother's lawn, and shovel her walk without asking for compensation or even a thank you. He worked as a handyman, so that was his kind of his job. And Annie's parents often bragged about their daughter's academic achievements, and rightly so. In 1990, she enrolled in Boston Latin Academy, which prior to becoming co-ed in 1977, was the first all-girls prep school in the United States. It was founded in 1877. It's a prestigious school, and you must pass an entrance exam to get in. On her resume, she wrote that she was magna cum laude at Boston Latin, which is untrue because they don't have that designation (laughs) there. And that wasn't the only part of her resume with false information. We'll talk more about that later. Yeah. By the way, I found a copy of her November 2003 resume on a Boston National Public Radio site that had PDFs of a lot of source material and evidence, which was very helpful for me. It was very interesting. There was a bunch of emails on there. It was stuff that they must have been, had collected as evidence, but she didn't end up going to trial because she Mm. pled. Spoiler alert. After graduating Boston Latin, Annie attended Regis College in Weston, Massachusetts for two years and then entered University of Massachusetts in Boston as a biochemistry major. Fellow students remembered her as nerdy, quiet, but friendly, nice, didn't wear makeup or stand out in any way. A professor from this time period remembered her as a good student who he thought had aspirations of being a doctor. And in fact, she did belong to the pre-med society and the chemistry club. All who knew her as a girl and a student were shocked that she would do the things she did. Huh. But she did do them, and Mm -hmm. she admitted to them. And the motivation behind her deception is puzzling to many of us. She wanted to be known as the best, the fastest, the most productive at her job. She wasn't stealing drugs to use, as another chemist in Massachusetts around this time was, and we'll discuss that a little bit later. Oh, good, okay. She wasn't stealing them to sell. She wasn't being bribed to falsify or get people off or get them convicted. She had no concrete motive to hang one's hat on. She just wanted to look better. Her attorney told this to the Washington Post, and Martha Coakley, the Massachusetts Attorney General, also said that that was what her motivation was. Basically, just wanted to look. She wanted to look good, Mm -hmm. look like a competent. Right. Be yeah. the star. Be the star. Yeah. Former colleagues and friends said that she often stretched or embellished the truth or outright lied to make herself look more important. Her ex-husband texted a prosecutor, and we'll also discuss these texts mm. later, that, quote, she's a liar. She's always lying. She is looking for sympathy and attention, end quote. Mm. I think we've all known pathological liars or just people that, we think are always bullshitting. <laughs> Most of them grow out of it, but not all. not all. I mean, we all know people that are like that. We all know people, but I have to say I um, know people who, they're so pathological, it's not like they're going to grow out of it. It's no, of there life. are. No, there are people that don't. I mean, but I'm saying as a kid, you know people yes. like that, but then as an adult, there are people we, right. I mean, I know people that. I mean, kids that. do that a lot because it's how you get attention. Yeah. And, and adults know. that do it are still trying to get attention, yes. but they just don't realize how transparent they can be sometimes. And frankly, I find somebody with her motivation much more interesting yeah. than someone who is doing it for money or for drugs yeah. or, you know. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, not, not crazy. But... So let me tell you exactly what Ms. Dukin was up to in that lab. First of all, this is how she got caught. In the summer of 2011, Massachusetts switched control of the Hinton Lab from the Department of Health's Office of Human Services to the State Police Forensics Unit. 
that did this for a cost-cutting measure. Mm -hmm. The state police inspected and audited the lab, and one of the things they caught was that Annie had forged a colleague's initials to sign out evidence. This led them to start an investigation of Ms. Dukin. Now, as I mentioned before, the most logical conclusion is that the chemist is taking drugs to use herself or to sell, but as we find out, this is not why she was taking them. It's not like no one had suspected Annie of some sketchy stuff before this. It's just that now somebody was paying attention. Mm -hmm. The first year Annie worked at Hinton Lab, 2004, she tested 9,239 drug samples. This was three times more than her lab mates. Mm. This was her first year on the job. Three times more. In 2005, she tested 11,232, which was four times the average and twice as much as the next productive chemist. If I worked with her, I'd be so fucking annoyed. Far be it for me to act like an expert in labs work, because I know nothing of it. And yet. (laughs) But don't you think... Someone would have questioned this productivity. I mean, if she was able to do it, why couldn't anyone else be that productive too? And if they aren't that productive, then exactly why is she actually... And and no one questioned it? Yeah. Why why doesn't anyone question that she's faking it? Did no one question at the time? Her supervisors didn't. I mean, right from the get-go, she was she was doing that. You know, like I said, twice right, as right productive. Right out of the gate, yeah. In 2009, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Melendez-Diaz versus Massachusetts, that chemists involved in criminal drug cases can be compelled to testify in court in person, saying that the accused had a right to cross-examine them. Hmm. As a result, a lot of chemists had to spend more time in court cutting into their productivity. The Boston Globe reported one of Annie's colleagues as saying, his number of samples tested went from an average of 400 per month down to 200 a month. Hmm. Yet, hers were about 800 a month. Wow. WBUR in Boston, an NPR affiliate. Oh, that's the one whose site that I got that stuff off of. WBUR. Did data analysis that showed the turnaround time for Annie's testing actually went down after 2009, unlike her colleagues. So she was doing them quicker and doing more. So turnaround time. So the time it took her to do it was faster. Yes. Even though they were spending a lot of hours outside of the lab because they had to keep going to court for every case. I'm sure that the defense, like, they probably had to request that the chemist be a witness, but I'm sure every single defense attorney did. Yeah. You know? And so that's driving to court. That's all that time take. You know, it's probably half the time out of the lab. Her colleagues noticed. And they noticed that they rarely saw her in front of a microscope. In 2010, they took their concerns to higher-ups who conducted a paperwork audit of her work and found nothing amiss. But they never retested any of her samples, which to me, again, no chemist here, but that just seems like the logical thing you would retest some of her... I would think. ...her testing, uh, if you actually gave a shit. Which I have a feeling no one did above her. She was giving them the results they wanted, and they didn't want to know why. That's my feeling. Yeah. Which happens a lot. And, I think. In all realms of work, if somebody, like we were talking about um, when we were talking about The Wire that season where the guy was making up the stories. Spoiler alert. Yeah. And uh, although you find out pretty quickly he's yeah. doing it. And uh, his season bosses, five. didn't. they didn't want to know. No, they don't. They don't. They don't really, they wouldn't admit to that. But So in 2011, so this was 2010 when her bosses audited her. In 2011, the state police did want to know why. In 2012, Annie finally confessed to what she had been doing. She wasn't really testing anything. She was eyeballing samples and saying they were positive, which is called dry labbing. Those of us in other lines of work will call it pencil whipping. Oh. If you ever heard of pencil no, whipping. No, I never have. Well, like in, in my line of work, say if you're working in the in receiving and a box of stuff comes in, you're supposed to be counting each item. You look at it and check it off as all there when it's not. Or it could be all there. You're hoping it's all there, so you just say, oh, yeah, this is all here. But so you're actually supposed to look at each item or scan each so item. So in other words, you're cutting corners and not doing your job. Yes. Yeah, okay. I'm not saying that. No, I do. I'm saying No, I'm not saying happen. you. And I'm saying people in general yes. who do that. Yes. It, there's all these cutesy names, but it basically yes. means just blowing you're, it off. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If a second test showed her sample didn't jibe with her results, she would tamper with the sample to make it match. It didn't hurt that the lab seemed very lax with evidence. One of the documents I got from the NPR site is from the state police. 
It's the results of an inspection which was done in 2013, which, yes, was after she was arrested, but I understand it was an ongoing issue that specimens were not labeled correctly, sitting around in bags, dropped on the floor. They have all these photographs of them, like a oh, bag. Geez. They found this baggie on the floor with stuff in it. They found, they're just like all over the place, so, not labeled correctly. So just so I understand, can you elaborate on how you test? Like say she's testing to see if something's cocaine, right? That would I be think what... she, if it's a large amount, she's supposed to take samples of, I think she's supposed to take random samples and test, and I'm not sure what the tests are that they do, but they take some time. Yeah, I think right. there's but probably a checklist of things you have to look at. But they're testing. I just want to, I know I'm sounding like I'm oversimplifying it, but I just want to make sure I understand. So they're testing evidence that comes in yes. that looks like drugs yes. to make sure it's the drug that they're claiming it is. Yes. The cops can't just say, well, here's a big baggie of cocaine. Yes. They have, they have, to, to, test they have and, to prove that it's that right. drug. And, and she's looking at it and saying, yeah, that's cocaine. Yes. Okay. And then I think either maybe there's a follow-up test that perhaps is done somewhere else or something and when she got that result back if it didn't match what she had originally marked it as she right. would she would add like cocaine to the sample that she had oh. so it would match so, so that's why so she, she was, was stealing tampering the, yes that's why she was stealing the drugs so she'd steal cocaine so she could add it to yes. other tests yes to make sure there was cocaine yes. in those tests yes ah jeez annie Sorry. It was an ongoing issue that specimens were not labeled correctly and sitting around in bags or dropped on the floor, etc. A funny side note, at the bottom of the stationery that the list of transgressions is printed on is the motto, quote, Excellence in service through quality forensic science. Uh-huh. I know, I thought that was cute. Uh-huh. Just because show motto doesn't mean shit. Well, so actually, that was the state police's motto, so they were kind of trying to do yeah, it. Yeah, but they had for the word forensic... But, so, what about, like, chain of evidence? Like, you can just drop a bag of cocaine on the floor and, you know. Who the hell knows? Well, they were samples. So, I, th- I think what they do is take the samples from the evidence. Oh, right, yeah. right. Yeah, I got They're it. like little, they're yeah. like a little tiny Ziploc bag they were showing. Annie confessed pretty quickly to the police and the attorney general's office. She didn't want the lab to get in trouble. She said it was all on her, and she, quote, messed up bad. And, quote, screwed up big time. Those were headlines at the time. So she just basically came out and confessed to it. Well, the state police started because of her, yeah, they started to look at her because of that evidence thing. And they had to investigate why did she sign, why did she forge someone else's initials to sign out evidence? So they started down that road. And I think they must have done some testing and they asked her colleagues and stuff and they actually questioned her productivity they just kept questioning her and she finally just so just broke, like caved. oh there were just layers and layers to her yes yeah. her deception mm-hmm. unfortunately for annie she was having a lot of personal issues at that time also her marriage was falling apart her young son had health issues although i couldn't find out what they were specifically I hate to, like, like if she really, if he really did have health issues. Her lawyer said she's petrified, you know, at the time of this all going on. When she thought of going to jail because her son has health issues. He was probably three at the time or so, two or three. I don't know what those health issues were because I, that was the only place I ever read it. But she wouldn't be above saying that right. as well. because Maybe she also housing things. She said... Like She's or just just saying no. that he yeah, had it without well, even much Well, did she have housing. a husband at this time? Yes. Okay. She said her marriage was falling apart. Oh, that's right. Uh, but she told investigators she was going through a divorce at the time, but there was not evidence that either she or her husband had filed for divorce in Massachusetts at that time. I believe they are divorced and they were having marital problems. I don't think they were actually. Well, if they weren't before this, they sure as hell. I don't think he was too happy with her. One of her colleagues speculated in a police interview that she was having some kind of breakdown. Perhaps she was, but I would wager the breakdown did not cause her crime, but rather was caused by the imminent discovery of her crimes. You know, she can join the fucking club. Well, she was an unstable person, you know, obviously. She had other issues. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't we all? I'm not, you know. 
On September 28, 2012, Annie was arrested and in December 2012 formally arraigned on 17 counts of obstruction of justice, 8 counts of tampering with evidence, 1 count of perjury, and 1 count of falsification of records. Wow. The last two counts were for her erroneous claim of having a master's degree in chemistry, which she did not have and Mm. never pursued. Every time Dokin testified in court, she had to send a resume to prosecutors. A co-worker, who actually was the same one that said that his thing went from 400 to 200 a month or whatever, it was the same co-worker. Co-worker noticed the false claim of a master's degree and called her out on it. So she removed it from her resume, but later the co-worker told police she and she put it back on. So, so she, this was before he noticed it before she yes, was caught. Yes, and he said, why do you have that on there? You don't have that. And so she swore under oath that she did have it because you know how when they go into testifying court, they ask you about all your... Right, uh, and, your and every ma- time she testified, you're saying she had to send a resume Yes, on. and she had okay. to swear under oath when she went to testify. Right. So that's perjury. And that's testifying She's only in charged drug- with one count. And yes. that's testifying finding drug cases that she was the chemist on. Yes. Yes. Because of that law, the right. Melendez Diaz. <laughs> the Melendez brothers. The Cameron Diaz. <laughs> <laughs> the let's stop fucking around and take drug cases seriously law. Well, if you're going to have... Drug convictions. If you, oh, yeah, if you're going to have a war on drugs, you ought to... Don't do it, do it right. half-assed. Yeah. Annie ended up pleading guilty and taking a plea agreement. Her lawyer wanted her to serve one year. The prosecution wanted five to seven. Judge Carol Ball sentenced her to three years plus probation. Although the judge said that Dukin seems, quote, a tragic and broken person, end quote, she should have had some inkling of the consequences of her crime. I would think. And this is a quote from the judge. Innocent persons were incarcerated. Guilty persons have been released to further endanger the public. Millions and millions of public dollars are being expended to deal with the chaos Ms. Dukin created. And the integrity of the criminal justice system has been shaken to the core. Judge Ball wrote when she handed down the sentence. Mm. Supervisors at the lab lost their jobs, as they probably should have. The state health commissioner resigned. An assistant district attorney, George Papacristos, resigned due to his personal friendship with Annie. Indeed, she was supposed to be professional and objective, but she seemed to try to curry favor with prosecutors as evidenced by some of the emails NPR curated on their site. One email from Papa Christos in 2009 has a lot of exclamation points. Oh, that, that always seems like it's personal when someone has a lot of ex- exclamation points. He says, quote, Thank you for saying those things. I can't believe it. That was so nice of you, Annie. I let a lot of people down. I just keep reading your email over and over again, and coming from you, that meant a lot, in all caps. Mm. To me, I really needed to hear those things. I was so honored that you actually cared about me leaving, blah, blah, blah. Even though I have to guess at the context, it seems a bit more personal than professional. Yeah. And a couple months later, here's another email from George. Annie, I got eight text messages on my work cell phone from your cell. And they, according to the messages, they were from your husband. He said a few things that didn't make any sense to me. I have to tell my bosses because it was on my work cell and he made several accusations that have no basis. I just wanted to let you know. Please tell him not to contact me again if he doesn't want to get in trouble. Thanks, Annie. I think these are the texts referred to earlier when her husband says she was a liar, the eight texts he got. Mm. Then in March of 2010, months later, is an email from Annie to George that says, quote, everything that you know about me and my personal life is a lie. I have lied to you about my marriage and my husband. I will have no contact with you in the future. Now that's 2010 before any of this shit hit the fan. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. But then the next day, George sends her an email clarifying that their relationship has always been strictly professional. He mentions that they had spoken by phone about it. So I understood by this that when he got that, I mean, that, that email, email, he called her. He called her. Said, hey, what's up? Yeah. But he wanted it in writing because I'm sure his, it's his, his work. work email. Yes. And he's sure so this is not, classic covering yeah. their asses. Reading between the lines, it seems like she told him that her email had been hacked, perhaps by her husband, because mm-hmm. he mentioned something about her email being hacked, or you said your email was hacked or something. Right. He says he wants it known in writing 
that the only relationship they had was professional. Mm -hmm. Annie responds to him the next day, reiterating that their relationship is and always was a professional one. Then she says this, which I find ironic. It is my responsibility to assure that all chemists are following the policies and procedures accurately and maintain the quality control assurance of the drug lab. Uh, Uh, Okay. Yeah. So in this email to him, reassuring him that it's professional... She also adds that line. Yes, and then she says, My colleagues call me Superwoman and say that I do too much for the lab and everyone else in general. I am not a workaholic, but it is just in my nature to assist in any way possible. Mm, She's very caring. Well, see, I think she took what her colleagues said the wrong way. I don't think they said she did too much in a good way. I think what they were saying is there is no possible way you can be doing what you say you are doing. Or, like, oh, you just do too much for me to believe that you're actually doing that. Or... She understood what they meant, but she's spinning it to her own advantage. And then it's funny because that Superwoman line, it's used in a lot of the media stuff like, how did she go from Superwoman, someone people called Superwoman, when I'm like, the only person that ever actually called her Superwoman was herself, herself, but whatever. Well, you know how the media is. I mean, somebody could have said it facetiously. Yeah. There are a lot of other emails from prosecutors telling her how wonderful she is and how she's helped them convict people. And there's an interesting one where the prosecutor is telling her what he needs to make sure a drug offender gets harsher sentence, mm. a harsher sentence that, you know, what lab results would be the best. Hmm. Not that he's telling her what to do, just what he needs clarified. It's like when you have your house revaluated, you know, so you can do a refinancing yeah, okay. and you say to the person, you know, the appraiser, yeah, you know, I need this to come in at 150000 yeah. for well, my refinance. Well, that's the thing. It's like someone with their people-pleasing mindset could view that as a request. Yes, easily. I mean, and I, I don't know if he meant it that well, way. Well, I can't imagine being the investigator on a case and saying that to the lab person without expecting a result and it's, from I it. I mean, obviously, we're not the only ones that feel that I mean, way because it wouldn't have been put. I'm sure she had thousands of emails. Right, you you're know. tainting it by even saying it. After Annie was suspended for the forgery issues, but before the other infractions came to light, she was not allowed to testify in court anymore, but she was still working in the lab. I don't think she was doing testing. I think she was doing administrative work there. Still. But there are a bunch of emails from prosecutors lamenting the fact that, why can't you testify? I need you. You... Because I think she must have done well in court. Oh, I bet she did. Because she probably came across as just very smart and competent and you know, um, straightforward and knows what she's talking about because she's obviously a lying sociopath. Yeah. So, as I said, she's already served her time and is out, but the repercussions are still being felt. In April of 2017, the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts tabulated the final tally of cases set for dismissal because of the tainted evidence that Annie Dukin processed. 21,587. Wow. For years since her arrest and conviction, defense attorneys and prosecutors have been battling over this issue. And I got a good summary of the issues from a November 10th, 2016 article in ProPublica. So I'm going to paraphrase some of it. One... Prosecutors didn't want those in jail or prison, based on tainted evidence, to be freed pending reviews of their cases. They thought they should just stay there. Stay in jail, right? Two, prosecutors argued that they had no obligation to inform the so-called Dukin defendants of their possible innocence. Why? And it took them four years to even attempt to inform them. And when they finally mailed the formal notice, they didn't give them any information about who to contact. They just said, contact your attorney. And the Spanish translation attached was so poor that it did not make any sense. They probably used Google Translate. That's what someone said. They thought which, they did. Which is so fucked up. One prosecutor said that a lot of poor or mentally ill defendants probably didn't know or didn't care about the Dukin case anyway. But if they did, they should have to be required to come forward and prove themselves that Dukin handled the evidence in their cases. Jesus Christ. Matthew Siegel, the legal director of the ACLU of Massachusetts, said of the prosecutors, quote, If you think that the person is guilty, then your obligation is to go out and get a clean conviction, not to protect the dirty conviction, the tainted conviction, end quote. Because that's what the prosecutors were arguing, that all the conviction should stand. Jesus Christ. Judges began to free a lot of the Dukin defendants 
on their own before any, I don't know how many different jurisdictions that it covered, a dozen probably. So some of those judges were just dismissing the cases on their own without the Supreme Court ruling on it because they were just like, if she was the main source of evidence against this person, it's not a good conviction. Right. You know, the, uh, Many of them were released with GPS monitors or were house arrest before they were going to be retried. So um, prosecutors did not want them out saying they were a risk to communities. But the Massachusetts Supreme Court in July 2013 decision said, quote, the interest of justice is not served by the continued imprisonment of a defendant who may be entitled to a new trial, end quote. Prosecutors went in front of the high court again, arguing that each defendant should have to prove Dukin handled their evidence, even though she didn't even know if she had or not, a hmm. lot of them. The court decided that in light of the insidiousness of Annie's crimes, the defendants deserve the benefit of the doubt. But they had to prove that had they known about of Dukin's involvement, they would have opted for a trial instead of a plea agreement. Most of these cases were pled out. I don't even know if, how many right. of them went to trial. I mean, some of them. But she, I mean, she handled... And I'm sure they were all based on the drug evidence. Yeah. I mean, they probably well, said, look, we need. got this evidence. Yeah. And a lot of them probably were guilty, but that's beside mm-hmm. the point. That is beside the point. Then prosecutors had another argument, that if the defendants who were dismissed were retried... They could face harsher sentences. That is, their plea agreements wouldn't still matter. It was kind of a threat. And the court, right, we're not going to plea you the way we did yeah. before. The court said the court said no. They would not be allowed to try and punish them beyond their original sentence. Right, because all you're doing is proving the evidence just, they were convicted on. They're is just trying accurate. to stop them from. They're right. trying to scare them out of. And I understand it. Can you imagine so, the millions of dollars? That you're going to spend retrying over 20,000 cases. Yes, but... I'm but, not saying... But the, I'm, I, I don't agree with them, but, but that's But the point what, is supposed to be justice. Yes. I know that's a naive thing to say, you know, but that's what the point's supposed to be. Yes. That's the thing they always talk about. That's what they want to do. Convict people who have broken the law. Yes. Not worry about how much money they're spending. I know. And if they hadn't enabled her in the first place. I know. In the end, though, over 90% of the cases were dismissed and won't be retried. Many of the defendants already served their sentences anyway. Their lives are already screwed up from a drug conviction. The prosecutor said they were probably guilty anyway, mm-hmm. if not of the crime she framed them for, something, something else. Something else. <laughs> but really, that is not the way we run our system, no. prosecutors, no. and you should know that. There was at least one Duke and defendant That's who was... That's the mean dad um, system of justice. Yeah. Well, if you didn't do that, you did something else, yep. a little shit. Yeah. There was at least one Duke and defendant who was freed and committed homicide. In 2013, a year after being released, two years early, because of the Duke and debacle, as I call it, mm. or debacle. Debacle. The Duke and debacle. He was charged with murder, so he would have still been in jail. He mm-hmm. got out early, he murdered. But with that many, there were up, there were like 40,000 different cases. So there's got to be someone in there that's going to do something like and that. And you can't say, you can't blame the response to yeah, what she did. And their guilt or innocent is really, like I said, it's beside the point right now. I mean, whether or not they're guilty, they did not get a fair trial. Right. You can't. Anyway. So now, a short time after Annie's conviction, another crime lab worker in Massachusetts this time in the western part of the state, was caught tampering with evidence. Sonia Farak was addicted to drugs, and mm. it seems like she wasn't exactly fussy about which ones. Oh, wow. She stole drugs from evidence to ingest herself, and then she took them, the drugs, while she was working. She was taking drugs. So not only was she covering up her stealing, but she was testing evidence while high. Oh. This is a sampling of what she used on a, the job almost every day. Cocaine, crack cocaine, and methamphetamines. Wow. And when she could get them at work, ketamine, ecstasy, fentermine, amphetamines, LSD, and marijuana. How the hell did she get any work done? I know. Plus, what did people who work with her think of her? Like, I know. I'm wondering now if I work with anyone who's on drugs all the time, and I don't know. Do they have drug testing where you work? No. I, I've known a lot of drunks at work. Mm, like, there's too. people you can tell are drunk. Oh, yeah. But I don't know about drugs. No, they test us. The state of Maine does not allow random testing. It only allows them to test 
when you start the job and then you can't, they cannot randomly test people. They can only test us if we're, say I was running a piece of equipment and I got in an accident, then they can test me. Right. There are certain, it's a very... But that's because what the hell am I going to do on my job there, if I'm drunk or high? There are 50... Um, Design a shitty kitchen. It's not going to hurt anybody. There are like something like 50 or more companies in the state that can do random drug testing. But you have to have people who do so. But you think, you think... I did a story for Maine Biz magazine. I would think if you worked in a crime lab around drugs, that might be something that should be a little bit regular, don't you think? Yes, but the problem is industries that drug test blame the the complex legislation the state has set up revolved around drug testing. I don't want to get into a whole... Well, there's a lot of thing. privacy issues and stuff. There right? are I other... Mean, there are all these standards that they have to meet if they want to do random drug testing. Most of them are for credibility and kind of a checks and balances thing, and they don't want to have to do all these things so they don't do the random yeah, drug testing. Yeah. But you can random drug test for cause. If your supervisor thought you were coming in baked every day, they can, even if you don't have an accident, they can test you. Yeah, but that's hard to prove. It is hard And to then prove. I can sue them if they're wrong. Right. So they don't bother. So they don't do it. I understand that. But I'm saying if you work someplace where you could... Just like if you... I would think but, that... I mean, just like if you work at, like, a, the people that work in the diamond industry or something. I saw this show once on the people that work, they work right, looking at ones, diamonds or whatever. Right, the ones who make a nickel an hour. They can't wear anything with... No, no, not the ones that dig it up. The ones that work in, a, like, in a... They work at, like, a desk-like thing where they examine them or something. They can't wear anything with pockets or anything like that. Isn't yeah. it, like, people who work... I'm trying to think of what drug... I don't think it's meth... But there's some drug, I can't remember what movie I saw this in or whatever, where they're all doing it with their bag and coke and stuff, and they're all doing it naked so that they can't put any, you know, walk out with it. Oh, that's interesting. I don't I know. I saw it on a movie or a TV. I can't remember. Maybe. So, Sonia Farrakh was convicted on a plea agreement and served 18 months in prison. But Massachusetts law enforcement officials only retested 10 samples of Farrakh's work when it's estimated she handled about 10,000 cases in that time period. And defense lawyers investigated and found that her drug abuse was worse than originally thought, and she had been messing around a lot longer than she admitted. Well, I'm sure she'd been doing it from the time she worked there. She worked there like 10 years. Farrakh's case, along with Dukin's, are good examples of how fragile a system we have and how imperative it is that everyone do their job on the up and up. Hmm. And there should be checks and balances all along the way to ensure the right people are being tried, the correct evidence is being presented, the right crime is being prosecuted. I know that everything can't be perfect all the time, and a lot of injustices we see are due to lack of resources, which is infuriating. Yeah. If we had money to, I know this sounds, you know, Pollyannish, but if we had the money to invest in all the aspects of the criminal justice system, there would not be understaffing. There wouldn't be shit like this going on. If we had the money to spend on education and preschool for all children, helping people in life, there wouldn't be as much drug use and criminal behavior. We do have the money. We just don't want to spend it. We don't. That's my, that's my editorializing. My opinion is that all the convictions should be dismissed and not retried as long as no violent crime was attached to the drug yes, crime. Yes, I agree. Most of the convictions were simple possession Way too many resources are spent on stupid drug cases. And look at the millions of dollars spent on this lives ruined expenses to jail some guy with a baggie of pot or coke. And I hope Annie is getting psychological help. I do too. Was there anything? she is. Was there anything in any of the things you read about anything from like her childhood or life that made her want to be this person? No, but my theory, I've got my theories. Well, I wonder about this. Okay, she, from what I read, she was an only child. Her parents doted on her. They were immigrants. She was smart and uh, pride. And one of her professors said, and more than one thing I read said that people were surprised she hadn't gone to medical school. Well, maybe she didn't get into medical school. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to get into medical school. So maybe she didn't get in. And so she got this job. And so she figured, you know what? Like there was something she said, like she wanted to keep people off the streets. You know, she wanted to get right. So, you know, who knows? I think she just wanted to aggrandize herself somehow and just didn't say, I don't think there was anything in her growing up that made her feel that way, but maybe she felt like she needed to. And she got so much praise for it and encouragement from people. And she did. I mean, she did. People seem to think very highly of her. The prosecutors did. But I honestly don't think she's supposed to have that kind of relationship with them. No, she's not. 
She's not. But she's probably not the only one. I no. mean, they work together all the time. How often do they work with defense and, attorneys? And it certainly benefited them. I don't think they should have any contact with each other at all. No. I think that but, the, they should be sending something to a lab and not, not know. know the person at all. Right. I mean, wh- what good does it do to have people, you know, what do they, I know? Well, the thing is, too, it's a commentary on what people want out of our justice system, that people want people who are committing crimes to go to jail, but they don't care if all the things that send someone to jail are on the up and up or not. I know. And I think there is an assumption like that whole thing, well, if they didn't do this, they probably did something else. That once again, people are being, you know, people see things in this black and white. There's criminals and there's the rest of us. So it doesn't really matter what you use as evidence to get them prosecuted. Prosecutors aren't wrong. Yeah. And if they're prosecuting somebody, they have a good reason. If somebody's arrested, there's a good reason. And... I know it's more complex than that, but I think most law-abiding, quote-unquote, people think that it's just easier if we just put people in jail and kind of not spend a lot of time or yes. money on or making sure they're treated fairly. Like, we hear a lot, and I, and I understand why people say this, but it bothers me, and it's not so much with drug cases as other things. Oh, the you know, the defendants have more rights than the victims. Well, the reason... The reason defendants have rights is because you want to put the person who committed the crime in jail. Yes. And those rights aren't to make it easy for them. Those rights are for are to make sure to protect some, all of us, all of us. And protects. and they're to protect it from subjective things. Yes. Putting somebody in jail. And I understand where victims are coming from, but it's not about the fact that something happened to them or their loved one, I mean, it's about that. But you want to make sure the person who did that thing is going to jail. And that's where rights for defendants come in, quote-unquote rights for defendants come in, to make sure the right person is going to jail. You have you have labs that test drugs and all the strictures on that because you don't want somebody to have a bag of you know, let's just say sugar for whatever reason, and I know, again, I'm oversimplifying it, and for them to go to jail for having a bag of Coke. Yeah. If people even sell that anymore, I don't even know. But, I mean, otherwise the whole thing's just a farce. I know. I mean, you're dealing with people's lives. It's very important that it's dealt with correctly. Well, and and it's not just criminals' rights. It's everyone's. It's everyone's. It's citizens' rights. And citizens get arrested, but some of them are not guilty. Mm-hmm. And whether they're guilty or not, everyone deserves to be tried the same way under the same standards. Because when they're not, it, it's like this whole thing, you know, and they have that saying in the court, the fruit of the poisonous tree, yeah. which is very poetic. I always yeah, liked I like, it. I always like that. But basically saying if one thing is tainted, the whole thing is yes. bad. That might not seem right to some people. And I know people get mad when someone gets off on a technicality. And that, that does suck, especially if, if you're an observer and you're like, that guy is guilty. or But it's not ideal. The reason those everybody. technicalities are there are so that are to ensure the right person goes to jail and lots of times when technicalities aren't followed it makes you like you said the fruit of the poisonous tree what else wasn't followed maybe that technicality won't be followed with you and you'll end up going to jail because of it That's right. maybe you know i know she was at fault for what she did but as far as i'm concerned the the legal system was complicit too because i don't think they gave a shit it, like it, there I were said. red flags early on, and nobody gave a if shit because they were getting the results they wanted. somebody comes in and starts whipping through stuff like that just because you think she's super smart, the thing is there's got to be, and I know, like I said, they probably were shorthanded and short mm-hmm. on resources, but to me, one person should not be in charge of something, no matter what it is. There this happens with people. financial things, right. too. You'll see they've got one person taking care of the payroll and this and that, and nobody checking that, and then suddenly the person is embezzled. You know, $300,000. Like, like Claudia Viles, the town clerk yes. in Anson, Maine, yes. which I'll, maybe I'll do that one sometime, who embezzled more than $500,000. And that's a small town. And, right, she just handled, because when people would pay their excise tax for their car, she would have them pay check or cash, and she only she only 
sent it to the state quarterly. Yeah. And lots of times people who wrote checks were frustrated because it took so long for the check to clear, so they give her cash. And the whole thing came falling down around her ears when they got a new town manager or something. And when I do this, I'll have the right titles for people who instituted this computerized system and deposits were made daily. And all of a sudden there was all this money missing. Yeah. And then it was more, more, more. But those town clerks, but nobody though, that else. All the time. And she was a tax collector, well, actually, not the town she clerk. Wasn't, but I said the wrong thing. Yeah. But she was alone collecting the money. And I understand because nobody else touched the money. And, but but her. people don't have a lot of like these little towns. You don't have a lot of money. I mean, and that's the thing. A lot of businesses they've got a bookkeeper, and that's it. And they're a trusted member of the community. Now that Annie was, but she was probably a trusted member of the legal community. Yeah. Oh, Annie's great. Boy, yeah. boy, have you seen Annie? She's smart. And I wonder, too. I always win a case when she goes on the stand. And this stand wasn't and... brought up in any uh, any of your things. And it may be stem from something I read when this was first coming. I read it. But I wonder, too, how much stereotypes played that she struck people as an intelligent studious she wore glasses she wore glasses and she was kind of and this isn't me saying it this is what i wonder people's perceptions she looked like somebody who would just be doing her job and not fucking around with things yeah you know she didn't look frivolous she didn't look frivolous that's right like we do Yes. Anyway, yeah. so yeah, I thought no, that was so that an was interesting good. story. I wanted to do something different, even though it's still depressing. Like I said, a lot of them are small. They were small, you know, they're drug crimes. But well, there's a lot of stuff about the drug culture. And arrests. I know that it's not, and I'm not naive. I know that drug dealers and people, I know that it's more complicated than it's Nobody's a, hurt. Yeah, I know it's more complicated than that. But I do think that part of the reason that other crimes are connected to drugs are because of the fact that they're illegal mm-hmm. and people are doing some illegal stuff and those are part of it. You know, I mean, personally, I don't do drugs except for drink sometimes now. I'm high on life. Unless you call over-the-counter drugs. But, you know, I don't do recreational drugs anymore. But I don't really care if somebody else no. does. As long as they're not driving or doing something that endangers me. Oh. Or doing it in front of kids. I mean, people always bring up all this stuff, and it's like, well, you wouldn't do that if you were drinking alcohol. So, you know, whatever. Anyways, I'll get off my soapbox. Well, a lot of times my issue is, and I know the opioid epidemic that we hear about every day here in Maine and other places, but a lot of times the people who are arrested and convicted are, uh, in a lot of cases, I don't want to say victims themselves because I'm going to piss people off, but not the people who are making all the money and who are benefiting from the drug culture, they're the poor, sad sacks who are on the bottom rungs and or also, who are addicts themselves. Why, it's, yes. Why is there an opioid epidemic? Because the drug is there? Maybe. Or maybe it's because I could go get heroin if I wanted to today and start doing it, but I'm not going to. But the reason other people do is there's nothing, they have no, there's nothing to do. Right. Got and then them. they become addicted. I mean, it's easy to become an If you don't have anything to do, you know, you have either a crappy job or no, you don't have anything that's engaging you in life, then you're going to turn to drugs yes. or something. And it's easy to get addicted. And it, once you're addicted, it's easy to oh, get. What if, I the feel drugs. bad. For, I feel bad for people. I, I mean, yeah. I've seen. And then, and then there's the whole thing and that we could go on all day about about it being a co condition with mental health issues, and because it's so difficult here in Maine and other places to get proper mental health yeah. treatment and that type of thing. There's a lot of self-medicating going on and, sure. or people whose lives just fall apart because they're not getting the care they need. And so, oh, and yeah. because we also, among other things in our society, we don't value the structure of the justice system, although we all say we're for justice. We also don't value what it takes to make people mentally healthy. Yeah, And it's another us and them thing where people look at mental health issues as though it's something someone else has. I think there's a lot of stigma about even just normal everyday disorders that even people who aren't criminals have and that type of thing that there's this where people who don't feel that they're impacted by that or who don't where they don't think it's a, that important. B, a lot of people are, like, faking it or they should just get over it. Or they, or they just, just feel like it's the person who has it. Somehow it's their fault. Right. And, and, and someone so, that's ill, it's somehow their fault. Right. And so the way that ripples out is that 
the policies and programs and money we have going for that stuff aren't given the attention they need because of people's attitudes toward it, and that has a big impact on the drug culture. Ultimately, you end up with people like Annie Dukin, who not only obviously probably had mental health issues, but it was feeding into this need to put people who are selling and using drugs in jail. And prosecutors and law enforcement likes to have the numbers. Yeah, and it's just like any other job. Yeah, They're looking at the numbers. They want the numbers. Oh, yeah. They don't care. It doesn't matter where you're working. They want the numbers. And it's kind of, I know. It's funny. Um, When I talked about The Wire before, that's one thing that struck me about that show. And it, if you haven't watched that show. The Wire. Yes. Each season kind of focuses on a different Not lack profession, word, aspect of society. society. Yeah. But everybody wants the numbers. Everyone. The IRA, that's what they want, reports and numbers, and that's what it's like at mine. My, and, and, my job. Right, the end always, always, always justifies the means. No, it's Whether so it's politics stupid. or the newspaper yep. or drug dealers or, or cops or cops or anybody else. Yeah, anyways. Wow. So, that's fun. Yeah, thanks. So, thank you for listening to my preachiness. And no, it was good. I, I'm glad because there's, you know, I think a lot of people have seen small, especially if they don't live in New England and... Don't read the Boston Globe and that type of thing. I've seen small stories about... I mean, it's like you think, oh, big deal. It's crime lab workers doing something. Well, look at... Look 40, at the impact. 40,000 cases yeah. were affected because by Because she it. was so productive. <laughs> She's a busy woman. Uh, okay, well, thanks. It's time for recommendations. Yay! So we're always looking for, at least I'm always looking for, because I am a true crime addict, true crime shows to watch that I enjoy watching that meet my criterion for not a lot of cheesy reenactments <laughs> and also bringing interesting stuff. And one I came upon, it's not a new one, but it's on Netflix. Uh, it's probably been there for a while, is A Murder in the Family. Yes. And the host is Laura Richards, who's Scottish. And it so far, the ones I've watched have taken place in Great Britain. But the thing I like about it is she's a forensic psychological profiler. Yeah. So she looks at these cases, and the reason it's a murder in the family is because it's someone who has killed people in their family. Lots of them are, I can't remember the term that she uses for it, but they... Family, um... Or what? Not spree, but family... Oh, annihilator? Not family annihilator. Are they annihilators? Is that what she I think that's them? when you kill the whole family. Yeah, but I thought but that's what, what But what, an interesting thing, and she points out the reason she focuses on those is because she's looking for ways to attack issues before somebody kills their family. Yes. Domestic violence, as we know, is one of the big factors. Although there's a danger in that because you could target someone. Although I'm not saying I don't agree with her. But but it's like looking at things. It's one of those things that you kind of agree with it, but at the same time Right, but it's not like, oh, that guy's doing that, so let's arrest him before he kills his family. But it's looking at things so people can get help they need. Mm -hmm. But, of course, her show isn't about, you know, people getting help because it's about people who kill their families, which is why I watch it. But what I like is she goes through what the person did, and it's usually horrific. But then she goes back and looks at the red flags and the factors and the psychological issues. And a lot of the things she brings up are things... Maine, two or three years ago, did a thing that these are the red flags that we see leading to domestic violence and domestic violence murder, which are things that hadn't been talked about a lot. And one thing she brings up a lot, they bring up a lot, and I hear in other shows, always a red flag. If somebody likes, if a guy likes to put his hand around your neck and squeeze, that's not a good sign. Because people who strangle, and people misuse the word choke as an editor, I hate yeah. that, but it's strangling. People who strangle, it's frequently a sign of escalating violence and control that leads to... Yes. And In I fact, also like I her Scottish fr- accent. I have a friend that, um, I hope she doesn't mind if I tell the story. I'm, I'm not sure going to use will. her name. But she had been, she had broken up with somebody or something, and girls she worked with wanted a girls' night out or something. Mm. You know, they all went out together. And so... She was kind of having a good time. A good-looking guy was talking to her, and, you know, and he invited her back to his place, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, I don't know. And her friend's like, oh, go on, you know. He should have some fun. It's just, you know, a one-night Go home with this strange man who you don't know. Hey, this was years ago. I know. But anyways, so she told me. And the way she tells it, she's such a good storyteller. But she told me, so they go to his place, and for some reason he has all these stuffed animals all over the place. Mm, not a good sign. No. On, like, shelves and stuff. And then while they are getting it on, he starts to strengthen, he puts his hands around her throat. And she thought she was going to die. 
Wow. She thought she was going to die. And then as soon as they were, he was, you know, done. She like, it was like, oh, I got to go. Bye. And, but they weren't having like, I don't want to get into like too many, uh, salacious details, but they weren't like having like consensual rough sex, safe words. They were stuff. having sex. Yes. But it wasn't, but it wasn't the, you no, know, it wasn't, there's different levels sex. of, which I tend to think that a lot of times when that phrase is used it's by the guy and the woman really is just right. not be enjoying that, it. Be that as it may, there are people who Yes, have I know consensual. there are some, but no, they were not. Uh, no, yes, I they just, were not. So, yeah, I would get out of there. She was not expecting it, but she also was afraid... To say anything to say it. as women... Not because she was afraid of what he would think of her. More that she was afraid that if she pissed him off while he had his hands around her neck... Right. And what I was saying earlier about going home with a strange man, I wasn't being prudish or moralistic. I'm like... It's just not a good idea as a woman. Sex isn't so important that you should go home with a guy who may end up putting his hands around your neck and squeezing I them know. until you're dead. And you don't you don't think about that. Well, but, she cured herself of of one night stands after that. Yeah. Well, it's like looking for Mr. But, yeah, so but the, back to but back to the murder of her family. And if, you, and if if people are not sure who she is, she was on that John Bonet special. You didn't mention the CBS that. one, the one yeah, with Jim Clemente to, that some people think was full of shit and that we thought was we really good. I know some, a lot of people do. I thought they had a lot of good points. I thought they did too. Yeah. Even though I didn't agree with all of the ways they showed them. But we're talking about murder in the fam. What I like about her is, and part of it I think is, I found. Like when I listen to British journalists and stuff too, that unlike American ones, they don't beat around the bush and they don't mince words. So she has an opinion about something or she is a very... Um, Can you give an example? Yeah, I'm trying to think. Her stance on things has got a, a feminist bent more than a lot of commentators on these kind of shows will have. I can't think of anything specific. It's just that the ones I've watched have been, the few recent ones I've watched have been men that killed their wives or mm-hmm. dog, guy that killed yeah. his son. And I mean, and yeah, she had so a that guy, that that guy who stabbed his four-year-old son yes. and, and, the daughter, and also and, stabbed his mm-hmm. 14-year-old daughter. Yes. Yeah, I think that's the first one I watched. And uh, I feel like she lets you know how she feels about it. And I know some people might feel that's biased or whatever, well, but that's part of her job. One thing I find, and I, I find this more on the American true crime, particularly domestic murder ones, than on the British ones, or not even domestic murder, but they pussyfoot around yes. rape mm-hmm. and around assault and around the gender issues that are behind a lot of the dynamics that go into domestic violence. But, like, they don't pussyfoot around like the American ones about, like, calling for the death penalty and stuff like that. So, on one hand, they're all, like, all careful not to ruffle feathers about saying this guy raped his wife or or here are the gender, the underlying foundational gender issues that lead to domestic violence or lead to women not reporting it. You know, they're all very careful about that, but they're... So out there about, you know, these almost kind of trite or self-righteous yeah. things. Like if, if somebody went to prison for life instead of the death penalty yeah. after murdering somebody, it kind of almost make you, especially on 48 hours, I find. What an injustice that was. Yeah, no, that kind very... of thing. What I like about her is she's very honest and straightforward and she feels very credible. And she puts yes. things in a context. So it's not just telling this gr- gruesome story about somebody killing his family yes, or her no, family. She, I enjoy it. Sometimes I have to switch around when I'm watching. but So we get, we like that show. We do. Yeah. It does have kind of reenactments. Yeah, which you can't really avoid nowadays. And I'm not big on reenactments. You know what I would rather see? Like I said on that Aphrodite Jones, we ha- I haven't really watched any of her shows since... since um, well, Phil Spector. Uh, yeah. But I would rather see like what they had, which was a computer-generated reenactment of how something happened. I don't need to see two people arguing... Over and over and over again. And the bad acting. And they show when they do those No offense to actors that do those. They do them over and over and over again, too. The I same know. little scene, I the know. argument or whatever. So, um, like, burn it into your brain what happened, like you don't already know. Or I'd almost rather see what they did on the tower, the, the Roto animation. Yeah. Where, so it's, yes, this is obviously an, a reenactment, so we can show you kind yes. of what... Yeah. Yeah. I'm still looking for 
true crime shows that all I'm I've gotten a little disillusioned with Forty Eight Hours mystery, especially now that they're doing that cheesy NCIS stuff. Oh, Jesus, and Dateline doesn't always satisfy my craving. No. So they um. Although I I like the people on Dateline. Better. Me too, except I for like... that woman who's kind of yeah, I know who you mean. and yeah, I she's okay. Yeah. But I like I Keith like Josh Mankiewicz. Josh Mankiewicz. He always looks. He always has this look on his face like he doesn't believe what anyone's saying. No, I know. So does Keith Morrison. Okay. Okay. So that's it for this week. No ask a lawyer. No ask. A, he's coming back. We just haven't been able to work out the logistics. And next week we're going to have a very special crime and stuff. Why? Because it's our thirtieth show. Yes, but also we're going to have a special guest. Our sister Liz. Oh, she's on the next one. Yes, because she's coming to town this week. Oh, okay. And no she's going to do Kyron Horman, the little boy who's, it's the seventh yes, um, there's, anniversary. there's another one of us. And yes. even another one. And another one. We'll have to get Nikki on yes. sometime, too. And she's doing Kyron Horman, who's a seven-year-old boy who went to school one day, and he was in the science fair and all excited. His mm. stepmother, and I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but Liz will set us straight, took him out claiming he had a doctor's appointment and he's never been seen since. Oh, that poor little boy. And it was in June was so 2010. Yeah, I and I was actually visiting Liz in Oregon. It's It was Maybe in Portland, Oregon, where Liz lives. And I, no, I didn't have time to... Uh, why would I do that? So anyway, that's what will happen next okay. week. Exciting. So you can check us out on our website, Crime and Stuff Online. Dot com. We tweet at Crime and Stuff. And Instagram. Instagram at Crime and Stuff. And we're going to update. We I'm going to update. Page. I'm going to update our More Stuff page to get some of these links yes, on Crime there. Yes, Crime and Stuff Online. Any of the ones you listen to, any of the episodes, we usually have links to, if there are links to Source material. Yeah. Or things that we didn't even use as sources yeah. that we find interesting. Yeah. Like with Phil Hartman. Yep. Because Hopefully I'll there'll have be a jumping part, uh, off point to... If you're interested in, in trying to... I mean, obviously, we can't include everything in our one-hour right. presentation. But we do try to put some stuff on there so you can look a little deeper. You can check out my other podcast, Notes from a Cranky Editor. You can find that on Millican Editing or find it on your app or Android. Do we have a link to it on our crime and stuff online.com? We, we will if we don't. I can't remember wh- where I... I know we should. I think we do, yes. And unlike this, the episodes are about three or four minutes long. So you can, you can take it in little bites. And you can improve your writing. And also look for our... Groovy Tube? Groovy Tube trailer, which will be out maybe even before this is up. You never know. Well, we're looking for people to pre-subscribe if they'd like, and I think you guys are going to like that podcast. Yeah. Okay. So, until next week. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Maureen Milliken and I'm Rebecca Milliken and we're really excited about a new podcast we have dropping at the end of June Groovy Tube yes and we watch a lot of TV as kids a lot and it's still influencing us today yes (laughs) (laughs) yes it is it is no we watch TV all the time and And you know we read we read a lot too so anyone that says we're not stupid well you know but this is kind of looking at our childhood TV shows through the lens, through the lens of, of being not only an adult, but just through the time passing. How do they stand up as far as what's acceptable in society today? What was acceptable back then? Stuff like that. It's interesting. And, and other things, too. Yeah. Just have funny things. And, yeah, funny things. And yeah. we know these shows had an influence on people because people, our generation and people younger, references... And we have a lot of affection for the... Yes, we do. We will be, you know, criticizing stuff too, but it's and like the way you criticize right. people that you... That you care yeah, about. But. And so. so for the first season, The Crimes of the Brady Bunch, we're going to be talking about The Brady Bunch. Yes. We're going to have 22, 22 episodes. 22 And each one we're going to talk about about half a dozen shows. We're going to go through chronologically in case you want to follow along. Yes. On Hulu or... Um, 
They're on CBS app. There's some missing. But we found them on YouTube. Yeah, we found them on YouTube. And we're going... You can buy the DVDs if you love them that much. And we'll talk about the episodes. We'll have some fun facts. We'll each have at least one, if not more, favorite quotes from that group of episodes and talk about those. Here's a sampling of what you might expect from our show. So the premise is the... Girls want to play in the boys' crappy old clubhouse. Which the first and only time we've the ever first, seen that thing. As I said, thing. and at the end they build a clubhouse for the girls, and that's the first and only time you yeah. see that one. Because that's another thing that goes through the entire series is something happens or there's some symptom or some problem that only happens in that episode. Yeah. Like Chan sneezing. If she was allergic to fucking Tiger... She would have been sneezing from the wedding no on. No shit. She wouldn't have been sneezing. And like Fluffy. Never, never, ever to be seen again. Right. And this is something I didn't realize, that they didn't want to also have yes. Carol be a widow, so it was very vague. They never mentioned him, because according to Barry... But it's like, way way to go, former Mr. Carol Tyler, or whatever wasp generic name they had. That, you know, you just abandon your three daughters and nobody ever talks about you again. I know. Maybe she killed him. Yeah. According to... um, Barry Williams. Barry Williams. Sherwood Schwartz, who was the... Producer. Producer. uh, The network locked horns over the fate of Carol's first husband. This is quoting from Barry's book. Sherwood wanted him alive, well, and happily divorced from Carol, but the network demanded his death. Sherwood met with the brass, smiled, nodded, and was extremely polite, but paid no attention to their suggestions. He left the fate of Carol's father, the girl's father, uncertain. You may notice she never refers to the guys being dead. Well, they never refer after the first episode to the... Either one of them, so... Yeah. She says, I'm sure if the girls had a dollhouse and the boys... Was that your quote? It's my quote. Scheming and fucking yes, mind games and trickery and sadism that goes on. But Alice says, who needs an old Victrola when stereo comes in? And I was like, what is she? Was she is like, did she, she have sex with them too? Yeah. Okay, so that's some of what you're going to hear on GroovyTube. You can pre-subscribe on iTunes. Or uh, on, on our, our website, groovytubepodcast.com. Groovytube, and that's groovy tube. tube. All one word. Podcast. And the website is groovytubepodcast.com. Yeah. And we're looking forward to having a groovy time with you guys. Yeah, It's going to be out of sight. Solid. That'll be season two of the Mod Squad. Don't wig out, man. Special thanks to Ben Sound for our groovy music.